continuing our study through the book of Matthew. This is actually the only of the second message, uh, verse by verse, after our mini-series surveying the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Nearly 20 years ago, the evangelical church began a debate on the nature of their involvement in supporting the nation of Israel. Many of them uh, became part of what is called the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, which is a pro-Palestinian movement created to end the supposed suffering of Palestinians uh, with the goal of returning them to the land that Israel now occupies. Uh, The New South Wales Greens Party supports and promotes the BDS as part of their political ideology. In 2004, a major denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, passed a resolution to persuade their members to divest themselves of all investments in companies that support Israel and add supposedly to the miseries of the Palestinians. The Episcopalians, or the Church of England in the U.S., another large denomination followed suit shortly after that, as did the United Church of Christ, the Mennonites, and many other religious groups throughout the past 20 years. And they'll use their joint conferences, they'll have their assemblies, and they will discuss uh, abandoning companies like Caterpillar, Uh, who makes the bulldozers that Israel buys and then uses to flatten Palestinian homes. Now, my point in mentioning that is not to minimize the suffering of people in any way, nor is it to argue for or against the policies of national Israel today. It is simply to illustrate the fact that churches and even whole Uh, denominations are preoccupied with issues that are really the wrong diagnosis for the real disease that is plaguing the world, and in this case, the Middle East. I'm sure you've noticed, especially recently, that the world is in a very troubled state. Uh, I can't remember any other time in my life when I've had such a feeling that we are on the brink of international disaster, something beyond the COVID years even, something beyond the threat of this looming recession. In fact, I don't think it would surprise any of us if we were awakened in the middle of the night to the news of something really cataclysmic happening in the world. Of course, As Bible believers, we know that we could be on the threshold of the last days that we have studied so extensively in the book of Revelation. But the fact is, we may be approaching them a lot more quickly than we think. And the real important question for us is why this is the case. That's the question that should occupy religious authorities and denominations before they begin to direct their people down blind alleys, such as how to sanction Israel, or how we can take over politics, or how we can champion LGBT causes or stop 
climate change or any number of red herrings. I mean, after all of the supposed progress of the last century, why is humanity still in a very troubled condition? Why are nearly all the nations on the earth in a great upheaval and disturbed and its people are confused and frightened? Well, the Bible's answer to that comes down to one fundamental cause. It's because throughout all of its history, mankind has failed to acknowledge and yield to God. I mean, He is the maker. He is the owner of all creation. He is its Lord. And He has seen fit to crown a king over all of it. A rightful monarch. Now, this is not a secret. He's not kept His plans from the nations. The whole process by which He has done this and through which He was preparing people to receive that king is revealed in the storyline of the whole Old Testament. And then when you get to the New Testament, it is the revelation of who that person actually is. I mean, he's identified. He's named. He's a man born 2,000 years ago in a small village named Bethlehem, which at that time was under Roman occupation. His adopted father was a common laborer a carpenter, perhaps even a stonemason. His mother was a young Jewish virgin. He grew up in a Galilean town named Nazareth, and he lived his short adult life proving undeniably that he was sent from God. We have four books in the New Testament that present this as the good news. And that's why they are called the Gospels. These four books were sent out in the first century to the church and to the world, and yet the world continues in the broken state that it is in today because unfortunately and unbelievably, much of the world and even some of the professing church have rejected that message. So the starting point for any of us individually or for any community or for the nations of the world to be delivered from all of their troubles, the answer is to go back and let those Gospels then point us to the only God-ordained solution that is wrapped up in this person, who He is and what He did. And our mission as a church is to point the troubled world to Him. Not to ourselves. Not to any policy or program that might deal with the symptoms of the real need. What people need is to be confronted with the true facts. Starting right here in the first chapter of this first gospel, which is the first book to reveal his identity, the gospel of Matthew. People need the proof that God offers in this book that this person really is the universal remedy for everything that is wrong in the world today. Matthew gave it to his first readers, and it continues to be just as relevant to every individual today. 
Now, as we saw last time, the gospel begins with the ancestral origin of this person. You may recall uh, last time that we saw a word that the Holy Spirit uses repeatedly in this first chapter. It's translated as genealogy in verse 1. It's translated as birth in verse 18. It's the verb form translated as born in chapter 2, verses 1 and 4. And the same verb translates as begot all of those times throughout the genealogy in chapter 1. In other translations, it's uh, translated as the father of. This repeated word is a word that refers to origins. And what we have in these first two chapters begins with the details of the ancestral origin of this person in verses 1 to 17. Then we have his physical origin in chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of the chapter. It says, now the birth was as follows. It was unique. It was unlike any person in that previous genealogy. And then in chapter 2, we have the geographical origin of that person in the town of Bethlehem. In other words, God is offering this person as the good news, but where is he to be found? What are his roots? How can anyone be sure that he really is the promised one? Answer, look at his ancestral origin. Look at his physical origin. And look at his geographical origin. Now, first of all, we began looking at his ancestry last time. And his lineage begins in verse 1 by tying him back to two people. One of them lived many hundreds of years before his birth, and one of them lived several thousand years before his birth. In chapter 1, verse 1, it's the book of the genealogy, the origin of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, last time we looked at the first five verses, which give us his lineage going back to Abraham. And I want to remind you again of the importance of that. It's important because Abraham is the one individual whom God chose. Out of all the pagan people on earth at that period of time to reveal himself. And when he did, he gave him an unconditional covenant. The promises of that covenant include the fact that he and his seed would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So whoever God's appointed ruler is, he must be traceable back to that man in keeping with the promises of that covenant. Well, Abraham, as you know, had two sons. And one of the questions that continues to plague the world today is the question of which son, Isaac or Ishmael? And as we saw last time, this man himself was the first person to propose the question to God. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, that he might be the descendant who inherits the promises of the covenant. But in one word, God said, no. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. So the genealogy 
of the person whom God has appointed to be the rightful ruler of this earth extends back to Abraham and it must be through this particular son, Isaac. Now Isaac also had two sons. The elder was Esau. The younger was Jacob. Which one of these two inherited the blessing? Which one was it? Jacob. Well, that also continues to be a big issue today. Many of those people in the Middle East, including the Palestinians and the Syrians and the Iraqis, all trace their descent back to Esau, whom they claim is the recipient of these covenant promises. But the answer that God gave before these boys were even born was that the elder would serve the younger in a complete reversal of what was normally the tradition. Normally, the older son inherited the blessings of the family, but not in this case. So again, whoever God's appointed king is, he must be traceable through Abraham's son Isaac and then through Isaac's son Jacob. And what we have in these first five verses is the tracing of that racial lineage all the way down now to a man named David. Verse 6 records that Jesse begot David. And then you have this little reminder that he was the king. So what we're going to look at this morning is the second individual mentioned in verse 1 where it says that the Messiah is not only the son of Abraham, but he is the son of Abraham through the line of this man, David. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject of the royal pedigree of Jesus of Nazareth. Many years ago, someone made the point uh, that in verse 1, the phrase son of Abraham refers to his racial pedigree, and son of David refers to his royal pedigree. And that's exactly how David is introduced to us in verse 6, because this is David the king. Now again, we are tightly directed when it comes to the possibilities for who God's appointed ruler is by these plans that he put into motion long ago. Before any of us were alive, God committed himself to bringing his chosen ruler into the world as a direct descendant of this man David. And there are certain Bible passages that record what took place when God made that commitment to this man. We have the very words that he said. We have the terms of the arrangement. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the passage where David declares his desire to build a house for the Lord. But in a surprising twist, the Lord takes David's desire and he basically says to him, all right, you're not going to build a house for me. No, I'm going to build a house for you. That story is not recorded there just kind of as a warm and fuzzy response to David's desire to please the Lord by building him a house. That story is given in Scripture in order to identify the house or the line of God's choosing so that all of God's people might know that God has left nothing to chance. I mean, the issue of who will ultimately rule God's creation it hasn't been left to survival of the fittest. It, it's not a matter of who can build the, the greatest military might 
and impose his will on the people by force. No, God himself made certain arrangements through a covenant with this man. I want to read the first 16 verses of 2 Samuel 7, and I just want you to listen to what the Lord says to David. I'm going to read this almost without comment. Now, it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house that the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. The ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But, you know, Nathan spoke a little prematurely because it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I've not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Verse 11, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he, that is David's son, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And you remember how Saul disobeyed uh, the commands of God to exterminate the Amalekites. Remember that? And so God took away the kingdom from him. But in contrast to that, he says to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, with that in mind, Matthew is going to go on and remind us of this covenant. He's going to remind us of the royal promises that are made. And he does so as he lays out chapter 1, both explicitly and suggestively. Are you with me? How does he do it explicitly? Well, he makes explicit references, doesn't he? For example, he refers to David as the king in verse 6. I mean... Every other man in that lineage down to verse 11 was also a king. Only David is referred to in those terms. Why is that? Well, to remind us that he is the one who was given the, the, uh, the promise of a house, the promise of a kingdom that would last forever. In the next section of the gospel where Matthew reveals the physical origin of this person, he records 
that uh, before the birth of Jesus, you remember that God sent uh, his angel to confirm to Joseph that this baby was going to be born uh, virginally. And the angel addressed this common carpenter and said, Joseph, you son of David. Well, nobody went around Nazareth referring to Joseph as having any kind of royal lineage. Now, the angel was reminding him, just as Matthew is reminding his reader of the importance of this person being in the royal lineage. In other words, you've got to read this like, like a first century Jew would read it. Or you've got to read it like someone today who is looking for the person who claims to have all authority of a creation at the end of the book. You remember that? I mean, who is this guy who says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth? All right, we'll go back to the beginning of the book. Here's his ancestral origin. He's the son of Abraham who receives certain promises, establishing the fact that he has the right racial profile. And then he's the son of David, the king, who was promised a descendant who would be a ruler over all, establishing his royal profile. When the angel came, Joseph is referred to, you, son of David. When the wise men came, they asked, where is he who was born? King of the Jews. These are all explicit reminders Matthew has put in there for us to remind us of what the Lord promised David in 2 Samuel 7. But in addition to that, there's also something in this genealogy that only a Jewish eye would appreciate and understand. And I want to show this to you, and it's going to take a little bit of thought on, uh, on your part, but I want to show you not only because it's interesting, but also it reveals to us the message of this book from a very Jewish perspective. This is the suggestive reminder that I mentioned a moment ago. If you look at the summary of the genealogy in verse 17, Matthew concludes by writing, So all the generations... From Abraham to David of 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon of 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ of 14 generations. Matthew is dividing this whole lineage into three divisions. Each one consisting of 14 generations. However, the fact is, there's only 41 names starting with Abraham and ending with Jesus. 14 times 3 is actually 42. Now, it's inconceivable that Matthew would miscount. I mean, you can just dismiss that option entirely. We know, of course, that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and God is pretty good at math. All right? So there's no problem with addition here. But not only that, in each case, the 14 generations are contrived. Because there are names missing in the lineage. Names that actually do occur in Old Testament genealogies. For example, look at verse 8, where it mentions that Joram begot Uzziah. Well, in between Joram and Uzziah, you've got Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, and also the evil queen Athaliah, who intruded herself into the royal lineage. But those names are not on the list. The Holy Spirit didn't include them for us. And yet it says 14, 14, 14. Now critics 
of course, use this kind of thing as evidence to show that the Bible is the product of fallible human authors and not God. But the fact is, when Matthew said, so all the generations are 14, 14, and 14, he's just referring to the names as he has written it. In other words, as I have recorded this for you, there are 14, 14, and 14 generations. You could say he's given us an abridged version of the complete genealogy. And the significance of that for a Jewish audience probably has to do with the numerical value of the number 14. See, the Jews are quite well known for calculating the numerical value of important words and names. There's actually a term for the science of that. It's called gematria. So there are three Hebrew letters in David's name. Okay, The first letter is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So they would give that the numerical value of four. The middle letter of his name, the wow, it's called a wow, is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, giving it the numerical value of six. And then the last letter is the same as the first letter, giving it also the numerical value of four. So the letters in David's name are four plus six plus four, which equals 14. Now, to you and I, as Gentile, I don't think we have any Jews in here, as Gentile readers, you know, that basically means nothing. <laughs> in fact, we're a little skeptical, aren't we? That the Holy Spirit would even use something like that. But, you know, again, you've got to remind yourself of the audience to whom this book was originally addressed. It was written to the Jews. And then you want to remember that in the future, the nation will again have to deal with this same issue of who is your Messiah. Because whoever he is, he he must be traceable back to David. So based on that and the fact that even to this day, The rabbis in Jerusalem are calculating numerical values of important words and names. It makes sense that Matthew would use a series of 14s to suggestively point to the Davidic line as proof that Jesus is who he said he was. In other words, although we don't have anything in the Old Testament that sets the precedent for God's revelation in these kinds of terms, we do know that throughout the Word of God, He does condescend to people in their cultures and in the ways that they think and the kind of study that they do. That's how He often communicates Himself to people. So in this case, to a Jewish eye, the 14 in connection with the numerical value of David's name really does have significance. And it's part of the claim that Matthew is making about this person. Now, I want you to turn to Psalm 89. And again, uh, all we're doing this morning is just noting the fact that God has clearly laid out the evidence to support that Jesus of Nazareth is appointed to be the Lord of all. And he's done so in the genealogy by tracing his lineage again back to these two people with whom he made covenants thousands of years ago. One of them is Abraham, the other one is David. And what I want to do now is point out the terms 
of the Davidic covenant as found in this particular psalm. Now, we read 2 Samuel 7, which is the origin of the covenant, but Psalm 89 is going to set us up for the applications I'd like to make for today. This psalm is actually a long exaltation of the Davidic covenant. Look at verses 3 and 4, and I want you to note the promise of that arrangement. Verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. What promise did you swear to him? Now notice how he summarizes 2 Samuel 7. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Now that's important. It would be one thing to say to a man, your line is never going to die out. I mean, you'll always have a male descendant to carry your name and carry your line. There's many important people in history whose, whose lines have ended, right? Uh, there's no male, no child at all to continue their line. That's true, by the way, uh, for, as an example, that's true of John Bunyan. Bunyan had six kids, but none of them carried his, his line. Uh, it was cut off. There's, there's no direct descendants of, of, uh, of John Bunyan around. No, no Bunyans except on your feet. There's no... <laughs> sorry. I, there's no direct descendants of John Bunyan. <laughs> so it'd be one thing to say to this guy, you know, this, this will never happen to your line. But they'll always be your descendants on the earth. But, now, it's, it's, a, it's a great deal beyond that to say that your descendants will always occupy the throne. That's what this is promising. Uh, verse 4 again, I will build up your throne to all generations. So that covenant was important because it actually said that this man will have regal rights in his line forever. Now, just compare that to 2 Samuel 7, where God contrasted this with the way that he dealt with Saul. You remember that? God removed the crown from Saul for doing what uh, these nations and their rulers have continued to do up until this day, including the nation of Israel herself. They've ignored God's authority. They've taken things into their own hands. They've disobeyed his moral laws. They're going their own way. Well, for that reason, God removed the throne from Saul and it left him in great trouble, which is historically what he always does when nations reject him. They forfeit any blessing that God might offer to them. They bring judgment on themselves that he warns to every nation that forgets him and every individual who ignores him and attempts to be his own master. Saul stands in Scripture with that kind of personal disaster, and it is a serious warning to our nation today. I mean, if we continue to reject God and move Him away and out of our society, we're going to go the way of Saul and his house. But in the case of David, God was saying, that is not going to happen to you. Your throne, David, that's going to be established for all generations. Now, the question that comes right on the heels of that is this. Yeah, but what if David fails like Saul did? Is that a consideration? Well, look at the same psalm, verses 30 to 37. God's going to answer that question. 
Look at verse 30. It's referring again to David. If David's sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But now here's the thing. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever." And his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness those two objects give in the sky. I mean, the sun and the moon have never ceased to appear at the right time of day and night since the day they were created. Right? I mean, mean, you can count on them being around. And that is an illustration of the solid guarantee that David's seed will endure forever. It's as sure as the sun is coming up tomorrow. In other words, this covenant is what kind of covenant? What word describes a covenant that is not dependent on the actions of the recipient? What do we call that? It is an unconditional covenant. It's the same kind of covenant that he made with Abraham. Now back to Matthew 1, where Matthew is proclaiming to any reader who understands these covenants that God really is fulfilling them unconditionally. Matthew's going to make that point for us. I want to show you how. Verse 6 again, And Jesse begot David the king. And what you would expect then is that this pattern would continue as it's been established in the 14 generations listed in the previous verses. In other words, it's going to say, and David begot Solomon, and Solomon begot Rehoboam. But instead of putting it that way, look at what God includes. Verse 6 again, David the king begot Solomon by her, who's that? Bathsheba. And now this little shameful note, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, anybody who knows anything about David knows that this comment is bringing up the most sordid part of the life of this great man after God's own heart. It was the recipient of this unconditional covenant. Now, we all know the awful details of that story. So would you say, from a human standpoint, that David forfeited the right to God's favor and God's promises. I mean, I mean, this is a man who not only took another man's wife, but then he betrayed the loyalty of his soldier and murdered the man. And then he continued to operate business as usual for nine months as if nothing had ever happened. I mean, the hypocrisy of those nine months is one of the worst parts of the story. And when you read this, it becomes apparent that David should have forfeited any promise that God ever made to him. And yet what is really remarkable is the fact that although David eventually became the father of 19 sons, out of all 19, God's choice to continue the royal line was Solomon, the son 
of this woman who never should have been David's wife. This account is in 2 Samuel 12, which begins, you remember, with God finally uh, confronting David about his sin through Nathan the prophet. And then the child who is conceived by David's sin dies. However, this really is a story of true grace because when Nathan pointed out to the king that he was the man, what were the first words out of David's mouth? I have sinned. Now you think of what that means for a man who's living under God's law in the Old Testament. That was a capital crime. The punishment for that was death. All right? But the next words out of Nathan's mouth is what? God has forgiven your sin and you will not die. Now, Betty breathe a sigh of relief at that. That is a magnificent mercy. Well, after that, David and Bathsheba have another child. And when that child is born, they name him Solomon. But in chapter 12, uh, the Bible says the Lord loved him, and then he sent the prophet uh, Nathan back to David, verses 24-25, and he said, okay, I'm not calling that baby Solomon. Do you remember his name? I'm going to call him Jedidiah, which means the love of the Lord. Why? Because that is a baby that was never supposed to be born. And yet, God is going to carry out His unconditional covenant through this child. What does that say about God and His promises? Now, you know, that would be enough of an application for anyone here this morning, right? That's enough to send all of us to our knees in gratitude to God that what Paul writes in Romans is truth that where sin has abounded, grace much more abounds. I mean, that, that is the only explanation for God's actions towards David. And that, my friends, would be enough for us to close shop this morning. Right? I mean, we could live on that truth all week. I mean, how much, how many times have you disappointed God in the last seven days? In the last 24 hours? Well, have you committed adultery like David did? Have you murdered someone and covered it up? Maybe this one's a little closer to home. Have you been a hypocrite for nine months? For a year? For years? Well, rejoice! Because I got good news for you. Where sin abounded, grace will much more abound. God is faithful to us in spite of our failures, just like he was faithful to David because he made a promise to that man. But the way that David has recorded his genealogy not only reminds us of God's triumph over sin in this one man's life with whom he made a covenant, and by extension over every individual who comes to him in repentance and claims the promise of salvation, But it also reminds us that God has triumphed over the whole national rebellion against God's plan. Where do you see that? Well, in the next historical reminder in the genealogy, verse 11, we come to the name Josiah. Look at it. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers. And then you have this unexpected statement about the time they were carried away to Babylon. 
say, well, how did that happen? Well, the whole account of that is given in 2 Chronicles 36, which is the last chapter of the Chronicles of the Kings. And if you want to know the divine explanation for their captivity, that chapter tells you that the king and the chief priests and all the people rebelled against God. Now, I want you to know that God didn't immediately come down on them like a hammer. Now, Scripture says that He had compassion on His people, and He sent them His prophets, His preachers, to warn them. But they misused the prophets. They rejected His words. Sound like today? Uh, Until there was no healing that was left for these people. There was no remedy for their national sickness and sin. They pushed God's boundaries too many times. But look at the very next line, verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon. In other words, the line is going to continue unbroken. Right down to the Messiah. I mean, the whole nation violated the terms of the Mosaic Covenant and they were judged for doing so. But out of his faithfulness to Abraham and his faithfulness to David, God brought those people back to their land and the line just continued on. I mean, you know, there's no other ancient nation where it can be said that they were driven from their homeland, scattered in a foreign country under a foreign king, and then decades later, seven decades later, they come back and pick up where they left off as a national entity, including the continuation of the royal line. It just doesn't work that way in history, typically. It's an anomaly in history. So what Matthew's genealogy here is proclaiming is the faithfulness of God to that covenant in spite of both individual failure from the man who first received that covenant and national failure when the entire nation was judged and exiled. They were faithless. God Himself will not be faithless, as Psalm 89 says. I mean, you remember that? If your sons sin, and they did. If they violate the law and trespass against me, and they did. I will punish them, and He did. But I will not take my loving kindness from them. I've sworn my holiness to David that His line is going to endure forever. His throne will endure to all generations in the future. And you can see that in verses 6 to, 7, 6 to 16, Matthew is tracing David's line. He's, he's, he's tracing it right down through the mud and the muck, through the lowest point in Israel's history, including the grand failure of their greatest king and their national captivity of sl- as slaves. But keep reading, because the monarchy is restored. And it finally has its apex in the Messiah. Now, the church's mission is to point to this Messiah and explain to people who He is and what He did for them. We must proclaim the good news to the nations of the world, and we do so by reaching one individual at a time. And we tell them that this is the only remedy for everything that is really wrong in their life and everything that is wrong in our society. We need to show them that Jesus is God's only appointed ruler. 
the fulfillment of ancient promises that he made to two individuals and the one to whom they must submit themselves if they are ever going to find peace in their life. You know, it's a terrible abandonment of mission. When whole denominations of Christians are giving themselves to the goal of the divestment of assets in order to put pressure on the Israelis, whom they perceive to be violating human rights, that's the answer to peace in the Middle East. No. That is a total loss of what the whole mission of the church is all about. And as a result, individuals are not yielding to the claims of Jesus Christ. They're not experiencing true deliverance in their lives because the church has let them down. Some of you may know the name Mel Trotter. Mel Trotter was uh, a heavy drinker. His father was a heavy drinker. Uh, He was a bartender in the latter half of the 19th century. Mel was one of seven children. He became uh, really badly addicted to alcohol and gambling. He married in 1891, and for six years, he promised his wife that he would quit drinking. On one occasion, he actually went without alcohol for over 11 weeks, but he always drifted back to the bottle. Well, he hated himself for it. He said, I loathed the life I was living. I tried my level best, but it just wasn't in me. And again and again, he would cry and beg his wife for forgiveness. He would assure her, look, everything's going to change. This is going to be my last binge. Well, he had uh, one little boy. When the child was about two, Mel was away on a drinking binge, and the boy died. And Mel blamed himself, and over his open casket, uh, Trotter's wife, Lottie, just begged him again to abandon his drinking. And Mel put his arms around his wife and wept and promised her that this was it. I've been a terrible husband. I've been a reckless father. I'll never do this again. Within two hours, he came back to his house drunk. He hopped on a train that night. He landed in Chicago in a cold January winter in 1897. He sold his shoes for another drink. Uh, And he was determined that he would just end his life and plunge himself into the waters of Lake Michigan. But instead, shoeless and just stumbling about in the snow, he came across the Pacific Garden Mission in downtown Chicago, and somebody pointed him to the gospel. And he received the gospel. And the man's life was totally transformed. He became an ordained Presbyterian minister. He started what became the largest city mission in America. Charter Ministries exist to this day. And he preached the gospel to thousands until he died in 1939. Now, do you think that is a rare story of transformation through someone understanding who Jesus is and what he did for them? Well, just ask various people in this room to give their testimony to you, like we just heard Justin's testimony. Some of your testimonies would be just as dramatic. And to be honest, everyone who knows the Lord here has some miraculous 
deliverance story from the power of the gospel in their lives. And it's not by being pointed to a church. It's not by being pointed to a ritual. It's not by being pointed to a social program. But it's being, po- being pointed to this individual whose claim is that he is the Lord of all by God's own appointment. And who has again and again confirmed that authority by lifting people up and delivering them from their darkness and their disease and their decay and clothing them in His righteousness and giving them right hearts and minds towards God. This, this is the gospel for the world. And this is what has been given to us to take to people to assure them that this is the only truth. This is the only way to eternal life. This is the way out of all the trouble that we're experiencing today. Let's bow together for prayer.